From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, happy Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is in the house from Mount St. Mary's Seminary. If you'd like to ask Monsignor a question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com i'm jack williams michael mccall producing the program your call screener is matt gubensky and your social media maven today is mr jeff burson as always so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. I hope you got your St. Valentine's Day ready tomorrow. Yeah, well, I've you know, what am I going to do tomorrow morning if I do that today, huh? Um... <laughs> um Anyway, we've got an email here from Barry, and he says, In the book of Revelation, at the end of time, it talks about the Antichrist. Is this a real person or a mentality? Uh, well, it could be a, a metaphor. I mean, the, the church has not made an absolute... Um, more than likely, though, some of the scholars have, have proposed that it probably is a person, a um, person that's going to oppose himself against a Christ, but um, it probably won't be like what you see in the movies. It's probably not going to be like the, the Omen series that, that uh, Hollywood produced, where there's going to be three sixes on the back of his skull, um, or that his um, mother was a jackal, his father was Satan. Um, but it's probably going to be a human being who's going to pit himself against Christ, and he will get the support of the secular world and those who are worldly, as opposed to those who are have their eyes and hearts towards heaven. Uh, who the Antichrist is, is a, a mystery. Um, you know, in previous ages, people have proposed certain candidates. Certainly Nero was the first one that came up, and somebody constructed bizarrely some kind of uh, computation where if his name was written in Hebrew characters, it would come up to 666. But uh, obviously the world did not end. It was not uh, the end times or the second coming of Christ at the time of Nero. Um, and whether one wanted to say it was Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or anything like that. So I personally believe that it is probably going to be a person, a human being, who's uh, in league with the devil. But it very well could be uh, a metaphor, an allegory, because the whole book of Revelation uh, is written in that apocalyptic literature. Eric wants to know, when was Jesus aware that he was the Lord? He was aware of the Lord from all time, because remember, uh, he's one 
person, a divine person. And he has a divine intellect and a divine will, but also a human intellect and a human will. So his human intellect is like ours, how to learn. And certainly at some age, you know, when you're very young, you realize you are you, <laughs> that you are a separate being from everything else. But your center of consciousness, your person, uh, that's a divine person. So Jesus would have had to known uh, at all times, uh, especially since the moment of the Incarnation, who he was, and uh, because his divine intellect was always operative there. Uh, in terms of his uh, human intellect, you know, he certainly had to learn how to walk, how to talk, um, but uh, this idea that he gradually became aware of, of his divine sonship uh, is something that the, the Church has never uh, adopted, in fact, uh, has even condemned because it destroys uh, the idea of his divine personhood. But we want to make that very good, clear distinction. Two natures, human and divine, which are hypostatically united to one divine person. Father John, you know that I love rubber meets the road questions. Patricia writes in, Is it true that if you leave the Catholic Church, you go to hell? You could. <laughs> I mean, we hope not, but um, if you leave the church knowing that the church is necessary for salvation, then you've closed the doors. Um, there are some people who are ignorant of that, uh, don't know that, and just think that, you know, it's just another religion. They can choose uh, a, another flavor, so to speak, like as Baskin and Robbins ice cream. Um, but if someone clearly knows this, and this uh, Pope Benedict made very clear, uh, in 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 a, in a document about the church, uh, Dominus Jesus, in which the church is necessary for salvation, uh, and because she represents Jesus Christ, who's necessary for salvation, as well as baptism, which is necessary for salvation. Now, to what extent a person uh, consciously, deliberately, and willingly rejects that, um, that's something that only the person themselves and the good Lord Himself knows. So we don't make a blanket statement and say anyone who leaves the church uh, is automatically uh, damned. But it's the potentials there because you're turning your back on the church that Jesus himself founded and that we believe is necessary for salvation because she's the guardian of the seven sacraments, which are necessary uh, resources of grace. And she's the guardian of divine revelation, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. So a person could jeopardize themselves uh, if they knew what they were doing. Sean wants to know if the Catholic Church condemns interest rates as usury. It could. <laughs> I don't think there's... I, I don't think it's... I don't, it depends on which bank you go to. Well, you're a little wishy-washy um, today, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> well, it's not like the old... You know, in, in, in ancient times, the Church stayed out of uh, the whole business, and said that usury, which was the unjust um, collection of interest on, on loans, certainly that's a, people make a, a livelihood on that. And as long as they're equitable and just, and people know that when they're borrowing, and they're not being taken advantage of, but we certainly know there are cases and instances where the rates are uh, unjust, unfair, whether it's because of the amount or if they treat people differently because of their um, their race or, or religion. But the actual charging of interest rates is not considered uh, condemned. Uh, it had been at one time, but that was lifted. 
I hope Sean's real name is not Shylock. Um, Alex <laughs> writes in, in the creed it mentions that Jesus rose again. Was there another rising that took place? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, there was only one physical resurrection, but when it said he rose again, it meant he rose, you know, he was dead and now he's alive. He was alive before he died. And then he was alive again. So it wasn't a second resurrection. It was, in a sense, a second uh, life. Although in his divinity, he was always in existence. His humanity, his human nature, had a beginning in time. He died on Good Friday, and then he came back to life on, on Easter. So that was the rising again. Got an email here from Dan who says, Does God bestow equal amounts of grace on all human beings? Well, St. Augustine says that God gives everyone sufficient grace to be saved, but it's only efficacious for those who accept and cooperate with it. And certainly a lot of the saints, including St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, believe that uh, the more grace we receive, the more, uh, and we work with it, the more we will be given. So it's sort of like a balloon. The more air you put into it, the larger it becomes. And therefore, there are some people who get more grace, um, not because it's unfair, but you know, they've been working with it, and those people have only accepted a bare minimum. Uh, so uh, we would say God gives everyone the possibility and potential, but in actuality, certainly, you know, Mary got the, the, the fullness of grace because that's what the angel said, hail full of grace. You can't get any more than full. The rest of us, you know, we have uh, diminishing amounts depending on our spiritual condition. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. Pick up that phone and give us a call at 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with our host, Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Father Trujillo and I were exchanging spaghetti sauce recipes during the, uh, the <laughs> break. Got a brand new item for you, EWCN's Religious Catalog. It's a miraculous medal with hearts. Uh, okay, let me start over with this. <laughs> don't. I, I'm going to mess this up, and it's Valentine's Day. Of the, one, the one day, I don't want to mess these the things one up. one day. <laughs> Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, and the, we have a miraculous medal with hearts pendant and earrings set. 
So this beautiful set includes a sterling silver pendant and matching earrings that feature a small miraculous metal surrounded by four open hearts and four sapphire blue cubic zirconia stones. The one-inch pendant is attached to an 18-inch platinum-plated chain with a lobster claw clasp, and the earrings also measure one inch and have surgical stainless steel French wire hooks and rubber back stoppers to secure the hooks. This elus- exclu- elusive, how am I doing? This exclusive <laughs> EWTN design is made in the USA and comes in a blue velvet gift box. It is an absolutely lovely gift for Valentine's Day or any time. Uh, for that person of faith in your life, it's available now at EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. And uh, go, go to EWTNRC.com and check this out because it really is beautiful. Uh, it's a pendant with matching earrings, the miraculous metal, uh, with hearts and some stones. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. First up today is Walt, a first-time caller in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Walt, welcome to the program. You're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. How are you? Fine. Okay, uh, I got a quick question. Uh, I'm Roman Catholic, of course. Uh, my uncle was baptized Catholic, but they just buried him on Friday, and he was buried out of a uh, inner congregational thing or something like that. And the preacher stated that <clears throat> you don't have to be baptized, you, you don't have to be anything other than... Uh, believe in Christ, and uh, what I'm assuming he's meaning is everybody goes to heaven, and my question is, how can a, say, minister of any sort that could understand the Bible, you know, just through Scripture, make statements like that when it says right in Scripture that uh, the way to salvation is uh, baptism through the Spirit and water? And then Christ himself said, don't take the narrow gate, or don't take take the narrow gate. You know, the path to damnation is uh, is large. So I'm just kind of curious, how can, how do these, say, interdenominational folks view some of this stuff? Yeah, I, I would like to know myself. Um, it's sort of perplexing that if you're going to, especially if someone says, well, you know, we, we take the Bible literally, and it's the Bible alone, sola scriptura. If that were the basis, and we're saying that, you know, you're only getting 50% because sacred tradition is as much divine revelation as sacred scripture. But even if you did go that route, it says, like you pointed out in scripture, Jesus says, unless you are born again of water and the spirit, uh, he makes it very clear. He told the apostles, go and baptize all the nations, not just a few but all the nations. So we certainly believe, and it's corroborated by Scripture, that baptism is necessary. And, uh, you know, one, again, I go right back to that same document I quoted uh, previously uh, from Pope Benedict, Dominus Jesus, that makes it clear that, uh, you know, we are saved through Christ and through his church. If somebody knowingly, all right, and freely and deliberately rejects Christ and rejects his church, the Catholic Church, then you know they're 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 in big trouble. What gets some people out of trouble, though, is that 
they're unaware of this. They're what we call, they have some invincible ignorance. But there's other people who are maybe not sure or, or they haven't looked into it deeply enough or they really don't care. But um, for someone to just say it doesn't matter, um, you know, that's not what our Lord said. You know, he, he talks about taking up your cross daily. That's part of our of our salvation too that we just don't sit back and say well i i accept jesus is that enough he himself said on you know take up your cross daily uh that's uh something that's really key important and then he says you must eat my flesh and drink my blood so there's so many things that are there in the bible in sacred scripture that make it clear that you know it's not just okay i believe in jesus i accept him and then i'm now i'm done no he wants us to uh cooperate with the grace that is given, and he wants us to truly be his disciple who uh, is, is the good and faithful servant who does what his master asks him, not just believes his master. Does that help, Walt? Yeah, that, that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. We appreciate the phone call. And I think, you know, some of this, I think, uh, unfortunately, I'm, I can't speak to this particular instance in particular, obviously, because I wasn't there, but, you know, some of these folks... You know, they they need something to differentiate themselves from the rest of the Christian herd to get people to join them, huh? Yeah, and I think you know, even if they have good intentions, it's not the best way to go because you're you're cheating the people. They people are entitled to know the fullness of truth and have access to the fullness of grace, which we obviously ha- have to us uh, thanks to Holy Mother Church. You're you're rather Thomistic, right? I would say so. <laughs> yeah. Victor Victor would like to know: Can you explain Saint Thomas Aquinas's view on the Immaculate Conception? Okay, um, he's for people it. have <laughs> <laughs> yeah people have misread him and said that he was against the Immaculate Conception. He was never against the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception was solemnly defined well after Saint Thomas Aquinas. It was uh, Pope Pius IX who made that proclamation uh, in um, 1854. But St. Thomas was talking about, with his understanding of human biology, it was somewhat limited. And if, if your knowledge of how a human being develops in the womb is based on what Aristotle and ancient Greeks had told you, of course it's going to be a bit primitive, so he actually uh, believed that we started out as sort of like a, a vegetative soul, which then became animal soul, and then a human soul. Um, that's not what happens, but we know that because science shows us that human DNA is present at the very moment of conception, and that the human DNA of the uh, embryo, the fertilized egg, is distinct from mom and dad, and it's still human. But St. Thomas Aquinas didn't know that. So... With his understanding, he, he had difficulty uh, wrapping himself around the proposal that Mary was free from all sin from the moment of her conception, only because in his mind, his knowledge of human biology, you know, that's not how things worked out. Now, if he were alive today uh, on this earth, there would be absolutely no problem, but he never uh, condemned or said that this was wrong. He just could not buy into it, because there was a, a debate and discussion among some theologians, is it opportune for the church to define this as dogma? And since it was not yet defined as dogma, it was 
uh, a teaching among many of the, of the fathers and doctors of the church, but it was never uh, official until um, over, like I said, you take a period of time that we call the ordinary magisterium, and then certainly the extraordinary magisterium when the, the uh, De Fide ex cathedra statement of, of Pius IX came out. So I think Thomas gets a bum rap on this that said, oh, well, see, he was against it. He was not against it if you understand where he was coming from. You take uh, you have some men there from uh, the diocese of Ogdensburg. We do. We do. <laughs> I think I think one of their guardian angels is on the phone next. Emmy Lou is a first time caller in Lake Placid, New York, and she's listening on Light of Truth Radio. Emmy Lou, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, there. hello, Father. Greetings from the Adirondacks. Yes, Thank I you. know three of your seminarians, Carter and Douglas and Michael. And they are excellent, excellent before. guys. <laughs> yes. We're doing well. We're very proud of them. Yes, we are proud of them also. Well, on Friday they had a discussion about how you can honor um, parish priests, and I just had a couple of ideas, but I it was too near the end of the program, so I couldn't share it with them. So um, as far, you can do things as an individual, or you can do things as a parish, and you like honor the um, birthday of the priest and also honor their anniversary of their ordination. And there are significant ordinations in the life of a priest, the 25th, the 40th, the 50th, 75th. There might be a couple of others, like at all the decades. And then um, we I've been in parishes where we've done it as a um, as a parish, you know, with maybe a, one of the groups in, in the parish spearheading the celebrations. And then... We also do work with the seminarians, and I've been in two different parishes, one at Watkins Glen, and we had two seminarians there. And so we followed them along with all the steps, the lecture, the accolade, the transitional deacon and priest. We gifted them on each of those steps with the aid of the, of the priest in, in charge. And then in our diocese of Augensburg, we have a, a Catholic daughter group, and we give a diocesan chasuble to each of the newly ordained priests. So those are just some additional ideas that maybe the person that called on Friday could use in his parish. But if you get it, you know, do it as a, as a parish, you have a lot more resources than if you do it as an individual. Mm-hmm. But you can also do it as an individual. I keep in contact with our nine um, seminarians on an individual basis. Well, Amy Lou brings up something, Father, that is is maybe not the most Herculean effort, but boy, I bet it makes a difference in you all's lives as priests. I'm telling you, um, you know, we're not in it for the the, the uh, aggrandizement or um, popularity, but I can tell you, as a pastor for 16 years and work here at the seminary, uh, I'm going to be ordained 35 years this May, and Father Brigenti as well. And we're going to have a joint celebration. It means something to us when people recognize and affirm our, our priesthood by going or just, you know, saying I'm praying for you on your anniversary uh, or on your birthday, especially with, you know, um, both my parents have, are deceased and I lost a couple of brothers and a sister. Uh, you want to know that, you know, you get that support. But I would also say that just from time to time, write a little note to your parish priest and just say, Father, we're thinking of you. We thank, for, we thank you for what you do. Because we constantly get letters and, you know, people complain about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, it's nice to get a, a nice letter. I remember one time the bishop called me up and said, I need to see you. I got a letter. I'm going, oh, my gosh, who the toes did I step on now? And he actually read to me a nice letter. He says, I get, I get so few of these letters 
praising and thanking a priest. He says, I wanted to share it with you. And I said, well, I'm so glad that you did. He says, now, that doesn't mean that I don't get the other kind. <laughs> I said, I know that. <laughs> but uh, it's good to support us, but as, more importantly, your prayers. God bless you, Emmylou. Thank you so much for that phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Give us a call. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls on an open line Monday. Brittany writes us an email and she says, How did the church develop the concept of original sin? Since Jews don't believe in original sin, what do they think about Adam and Eve? Well, I wouldn't say the Jews don't believe in original sin because I posed that question to a rabbi friend of mine when I was newly ordained and we had a Jewish community. He said, uh, because Judaism is not monolithic, you don't you have different uh, types of, Ju- of Judaism. You have the uh, strict um, Jews, the Hasidic Jews, conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews. You got the liberal Jews, um, reformed, reformed yeah. reconstructionists, and so forth. But so there are some who do believe, um, obviously, that there is such a thing as original sin, but they don't believe that the Messiah has yet arrived. But he, it's obvious that the majority of Jews don't have that idea of original sin. Um, the concept certainly uh, is there, uh, but it's not spelled out th- definitively. Um, we don't even have um, St. Paul talking about original sin, but the concept certainly is there uh, in the New Testament, and the whole necessity of baptism is based on the fact that we need to be uh, cleansed of original sin, made righteous in the eyes of God, and this is the personal application of what Jesus did on Good Friday um, to that individual person. But um, the fact that they, even if they don't believe in original sin, they certainly believe in the the need for a Messiah. Well, what do you need a Messiah for? To redeem you. And when a Jewish person becomes Christian, that's that step where they actually realize and accept and believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and he's the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. And uh, when they understand what original sin is and how it is removed, you know, then then it's 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 a wonderful process. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Let's put Mr. Matt Kubensky, our call screener, to work at 833-288-3986. Mark asks, can you explain invincible ignorance to me? Okay. Invincible ignorance, first, the ignorance, uh, it's a lack of knowledge. Invincible means that, you know, you're unable to overcome uh, this lack of knowledge. You don't know you have it, and you're unable to remedy it. So anyone who has invincible ignorance is not culpable of things they do based on that. So, for instance, if somebody does not have any use of their five senses, 
there's no way they're going to get any information into their intellect. So whatever they do, uh, there's no really moral um, quality on there because you must be able to know what you're doing. And in order to know something, the information comes through the senses, as uh, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, tells us in, in the Summa. Um, some people have invincible ignorance because uh, their clarity of thought is so diminished. Somebody who has a, a mental deficiency, um, anyone who's not had the has the ability to reason, um, whether it's because they're not old enough or because of some um, uh, abnormality that they, they may have. Invincible ignorance is different from what we call crass or supine ignorance, where a person knows they're ignorant, they know they don't know the answer, and they refuse to, to look for to get it. Uh, that's morally culpable. Even though you wouldn't be culpable for what you don't know, you're culpable for the fact that you know you don't know. Here's a thing that needs to be clarified every so often uh, on the airwaves here. Uh, Peter writes in, what is the difference between mediator and intercessor? Wonderful question. Jesus is the sole mediator between God and man, as St. Paul tells us. A mediator is one who bridges two sides. And Jesus is not only the one mediator, he's the perfect mediator because he's both God and man, human and divine. And so he bridges the gap and man could never redeem himself because of our fallen nature, thanks to original sin. And yet, though human could not, humanity could not save itself, it is God who becomes man so that he sanctifies human nature and therefore he is the perfect mediator. Intercessor is someone who goes to the mediator. And so an intercessor does not take the place of the mediator. It doesn't say, oh, you go to me, and then it's the done deal. The intercessor says, I will go to the mediator for you. And it's not by necessity, it's by choice. This is why Jesus, he didn't need 12 apostles. He chose to have 12 apostles. He allowed his mother Mary at the wedding feast of Cana to um, say they have no more wine, and then he performed his first public miracle. We have the Roman centurion uh, asking for his uh, servant boy to be healed. Uh, we have many instances where people went to Jesus not just for themselves, but asked for help for somebody else. Jairus, for instance, with his daughter. So in all those cases, that's intercession. A person goes to the mediator on behalf of someone else. Um, when someone in the Protestant church is ill, they ask all the fellow parishioners to pray for them. That's perfect intercession right there. All those intercessors are going to the one mediator. We as Catholics, we pray for each other, which is intercession. We also ask for Mary and the saints for their prayers. That's intercession. We're all praying in the same direction, though, to the one mediator, Jesus Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We have open lines and plenty of time for your calls. James says, are there passages that reflect the process of growing in holiness? Growing holiness. Well, um, certainly we have many examples in the Old and New Testament where people have grown in wisdom and grace. So uh, we see in the life of King David, King Solomon, Certainly they were not perfect, they made some mistakes, they had some sins, and they moved beyond that by God's grace. Um, we also see that in the life of St. Paul, a beautiful example where he was the enemy of the church. You know, as Saul of Tarsus, he was persecuting, 
and he would later become uh, St. Paul, one of the, the greatest uh, of, of the apostles. There's an example where he grew in holiness. Um, we see this with the apostles as well. Uh, St. Peter, uh, James, John, all the rest, uh, everybody but, but Judas. So there's many, many, many instances where uh, people start off initially in, in sort of the infancy of their faith, and it's a little, it's a bumpy road for many of us. Uh, we, we make some mistakes along the way, but then we keep getting back up on the horse, as they say, and God's grace helps us go beyond those um, fallbacks, and that's a, a sign of growing in, in, in holiness. And as, as the Vatican Council, uh, Second Vatican Council beautifully taught us, you know, there's the universal call to holiness. Everyone, everyone is called to be a great saint. Uh, as Mother Angelica would say, don't, don't miss the opportunity. So if you're not growing in holiness and grace, it's your fault. God's going to give you all the grace you need, but you have to accept it, and then you have to work with it. Um, Tim is next up. He's a first-time caller in Longmont, Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Tim, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Thank you, Father. Um, my question is, during the consecration, there's a protective card that's placed over the cup. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Uh, obviously, for maybe protecting it against dust or something, there's not a card that's placed over the tray holding the host, so I'd like to hear your comments on how that got into the Mass and why. Okay, I'm glad you did. I just got a nice, <laughs> someone just sent me a nice Paul uh, for an early birthday present to me, by the way. Um, it's, it is a card, either it would have made out of cardboard or plastic, that has a nice cloth sewn over it. And it's a very uh, practical thing in that it protects the chalice when it's filled with wine, and then supposed, especially after it's consecrated into the precious blood of Christ, from things falling in there. Not just dust, but spiders, flies, stink bugs, uh, bird poop, you name it. Anything that could possibly fall in there and make it disgusting. So it has a very practical, but it also has a nice symbolic uh, uh, image of it that it's like the, the tomb being closed uh, with, with the rock. And then it's lift, you know, when Jesus uh, rises on Easter Sunday, the stones rolled back and, the, and then the, the, uh, the pall is taken off it. But uh, they, I've seen very simple ones where it's just white. Uh, someone sent me a nice one with um, a symbol of the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, uh, on there, uh, a big M with a crown. Um, so it is, it's practical, but also has a nice symbolic value to it. Why not the patent? The patent because basically, not many, I mean, there's not much danger to the, to the host other than the worst case scenario, something liquid dropping on it or an animal scooping up, but it, I've, it doesn't happen that often at all. Uh, the liquid is much more fragile and susceptible to contamination, so that's why they put it over the chalice and not the... Uh, but I've seen priests who, after the consecration, will put the, the lid on the ciborium, which contains the host, yeah. for, the, for the same reason. It's just that it's not as necessary. Um, Leonard is watching on YouTube, and he asks, when Moses was given the commandments... Did the tablets have all of the 600-some-odd commandments or just the 10? It reminds me of that movie with Mel Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> I give you these 15. These 15. He drops them. Oi, 10. Ten. Ten commandments. Um, no, those 600-and-some those uh, mosaic laws were not part of the Decalogue. Um, in, in, in Hebrew, it's called the Debarim, the 10 words uh, for the 10 commandments. So those were the ten that Moses received, and they were later put in the Ark of the Covenant. 
Um, the other laws, Mosaic laws, were written afterwards. They were certain part of the Jewish faith, but the Ten Commandments were written by God himself uh, in the stone. The, the other ones were orally transmitted. AC is calling from Bay Area, Colorado, watching us today on YouTube. AC, you're on with uh, Father John Tregilio. Hey, what's going on, Father John? Thank you very much for taking my call. I appreciate it. And um, I'm actually calling from uh, San Jose, California, Bay Area. I'm not Colorado. <laughs> yeah, we're still we're still teaching uh, we're still teaching our call screener Matt Gubetsky English. So uh, <laughs> go right ahead, AC. Okay, so this is going to be a little bit winded. So let me kind of lay lay down the foundation for my question, and then at the very end is going to be the actual pinpointed uh, concern of mine. Okay, so as Catholics, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic uh, church, which is the succession of the you know the teachings of Jesus down through the generations. Obviously, so here's my question. No, here's not. This is not yet the question. In the Bible, with us believing the apostolic succession, why is it that there's hardly any original apostles included in the New Testament? I mean, there's like John, I believe, there's uh, maybe Matthew, Peter, but the rest of it, almost the entirety, is written by Paul, who reminds you, of course, you know, Father, he was a persecution of, Jew, uh, of, of Christians before, killed them, arrested them, and jailed them. He proclaims to be Christian, like, you know, from the vision of Jesus. So from then on, he pretty much self-proclaimed to be uh, an apostle. He's just a disciple, I believe. He's not one of the originals. So here's now, here's now my question. Why do people quote Paul so much over Jesus? When they're giving a message about Jesus, then they'll always go, but Paul said... But Paul said, but Paul, 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 everything's about Paul. And it concerns me so much, being that we are in this Eucharistic revival, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the only place really that says not to receive the Holy Eucharist unless you examine conscience, which is, you should, obviously. But so much all over the, in, the, in the Gospels where it says you have to, you know, you have to eat my blood, um, eat my body, drink my my blood, and he goes on and on. It is true food. It is true drink. It is. It is. So they seem to just pick Paul over Jesus all the time, and I don't know. That, that's that concerns me. Okay. Well, um, I understand where you're, where you're coming from, and certainly. We want to make it clear that, you know, uh, St. Paul does not outrank or uh, have more importance than Jesus. Jesus is the Savior and Messiah, and he's the Son of God. Um, St. Paul is an apostle, but not one of the 12 apostles. He was chosen by Jesus, but at some point, St. Paul realized that he just couldn't go on his own, be autonomous. He, at one point, he realized he has to go see Peter, as it says in the Scripture. And so he went to Peter and the other apostles, and that way his apostleship was confirmed uh, by the by the rest. Now, we talk about apostolic succession, it's not just the teaching, but it's the fact that every single bishop has been ordained and consecrated a bishop by someone who previously was ordained or consecrated by a bishop that you can trace back all the way to one of the 12 apostles. Now, there's a, this difference between an apostle and an evangelist. An apostle is one of the 12 that Jesus chose uh, that were at the Last Supper, 
and at Pentecost, the evangelist is someone who the Holy Spirit inspired to write. So we have the four gospel writers, two of which were apostles, St. Matthew and St. John, but uh, Luke and Mark were not apostles, they were disciples. St. Paul was not an original apostle, um, and we have then the letter of, of, of St. James um, and, and Jude. So there's overlap in that you can have be an apostle and evangelist, or you can be an evangelist and not be an apostle, but they're distinct uh, missions. Evangelist is someone who writes down what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. An apostle is one who went and preached the gospel uh, to the different uh, peoples that they were they felt needed they needed to preach to. Um, so I understand that sometimes people get, you know, and they do, will refer to Paul, 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 but it is inspired text, so, it is, you know, you can't disclaim what Paul has to say, but you have to always put it in context. Obviously, the Gospels outrank everything uh, because it is the actual words of Christ, what he actually said and did. St. Paul is a commentary. It is inspired text by the Holy Spirit, so it's, it's, revel it's revealed, it's infallible, it's inerrant, but uh, obviously, you know, you can't say it's on the equal level of what uh, Jesus says, but it's not in competition because it, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, as is Jesus the Son and God the Father. Uh, so, uh, you know, we don't want to look as if it's sort of some kind of competition or contest between them. Um, but I would definitely say uh, St. Uh, Paul, when he refers to receiving the Holy Communion worthily, that coincides with what, you know, what the Church teaches. He does not reiterate or go over every single thing that the um, evangelists say, because that would be redundant. But he did chastise the Corinthians for misbehaving and receiving unworthily. So I, I see the different uh, books of the of the New Testament and Old Testament as complementing one another, as opposed to which one is more important than the other. Thank you, AC. We appreciate the call today. God bless you there in the Bay Area. 833-288-EWTN. 833-288-3986. Stephen is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Stephen, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much, uh, Jack, and thank you, Father. Uh, Father Giulio, a uh, question, please. Um, do either the, the, um, the lectors or the priest slash deacon have the ability to use inclusive language either doing the, the readings or the gospel. Uh, example, four weeks ago, the pastor was reading the section where our Lord tells the disciples, I'll make you fishers of men, and changed it to fishers of all people. So I didn't think, uh, unless there has to be some type of approval or rewriting it all by the bishops or the pope, so I just want some help on that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you called in. Uh, because that is not authorized. The only time that anything was changed was officially by the church when we had uh, English translation, and when St. Paul would address uh, people, my dear brothers, um, they, they included the word sisters in the English translation because the word in Greek was inclusive, you know, brothers and sisters, and he was addressing it to all believers, um, so that, that was the reason why there was a tweaking of that, but only the church has the authority, and the official church, um, from the pope to the bishops, 
who are united and under his uh, under him as well. So an individual priest, whether it's a pastor or the parochial vicar or a deacon or the lay lector, has no authority or prerogative to change the text. So it is, if the print, printed text for the New American Bible says fishers of men, that's what you must read. Um, you're not, you don't have that luxury. Now, in terms of certain prayers, it makes it very clear that um, in some parts of the Roman Missal, or words to this effect, that one could be uh, more inclusive. Um, for instance, when we do the confidior or the introduction, my brothers and sisters, um, that it's very explicit when that's allowed. Other places, you have to say what the words say. So you say the black, you do the red, you're okay. You start messing with that, you're causing trouble. Um, be sure to check out The Doctor Is In tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time with Dr. Ray Garendi. Uh, that's The Doctor Is In tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Kelly in the great state of Montana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kelly, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Thank you for taking my call. Just a quick question. I know that... Um, Catholics joining the Freemasonry is not compatible, but could a Catholic join at a local chapter when it's really deemed a social club? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, no, um, because you're still joining the Freemasons, and the Vatican made it very clear, uh, especially when Cardinal Ratzinger was Cardinal Ratzinger, that if a Catholic joins the Freemasons, then they're ineligible for Holy Communion. Now, you can go to the Freemason Social and not become a Freemason. If you go and have dinner or drink a beer, you're not you're not joining the Freemasons. Um, I know with the Knights of Columbus, they have uh, social members whenever they had a, a dinner club or something that allowed when they came under the with invitation or auspices of a member. Uh, that's different than being a full member. And the same with, with this, because uh, th there's a importance put on joining and if you become a freemason join the masons you're saying i consent to what they say and believe um, you if you eat and drink under their roof that's not necessarily con giving full credence to all that so uh, catholic joining just for the social aspects i know some catholics say well i just want to join so i can get the ring and then i'll get business uh, uh advantages you're still joining all right, so uh, you want to make it very clear. It's in the same way as when people used to sign up for the Communist Party. You joined, uh, you know, they're they're atheists, you know. Uh, so it, it's it's a very important distinction to make, and I'm glad you called in about that. Our friend Lulu is watching us on YouTube today. She says, "How were people created after Adam and Eve?" <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the natural way. <laughs> Birds and the bees. <laughs> yeah, natural biology took over after that point. Because um, we see even in the in the book of Genesis, um, uh, Eve gave birth to a son. And then, you know, after she gave birth to Cain, she gave birth to Abel. Um, now, how the rest of the human race came from that, Scripture doesn't tell us. Because that's an issue for biology and, and uh, science to, to uh, ascertain. However, it's interesting that science today, 
um, especially going back to the 1980s um, with two uh, agnostic British uh, scientists, have established that the whole human race can be traced through mitochondrial DNA to one woman. So what the church has always taught, uh, monogenism, that the human race comes from one set of, of human parents, as opposed to polygenism, that was several or many uh, parents. This is confirmed now by science, uh, and I don't think they were doing it on purpose, that, that they just discovered this. But yet the question still comes, how do you get from two human beings, and then like we read in the scripture today, when Cain killed Abel, God put a mark on Cain so no one would kill him. Well, who's going to kill him? <laughs> you know, It's not going to be Adam and Eve, his parents. So who's he afraid of? And then where does he find his wife? These are questions that third graders would ask me when I would teach religion class there. Where are these other people, Father? I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us where they came from, how they, were, uh, how they arrived on this earth. But the point is, we do come from one set of parents so that we are brothers and sisters of the same human race. Well, there are references in the scriptures to the Nephilim and things like this, huh? Yeah, that I've heard some um, credible theologians propose that the Nephilim could have been uh, something similar to but not equal to Homo sapiens. It could have been uh, Neanderthals or whatever because even science is now showing us the same thing, that um, there were similar species but not the same not that we that we came from one stock that we didn't evolve from apes but that you could have similar humanoid beings but they were not homo sapiens they did not have an immortal soul and there could have been that solution there i had a comparative anatomy class in college that really was an evolution class more than anything and Uh we had a little running feud not so much a feud, it was very friendly, but she would always run into these gaps in the fossil record, which exist, and every time she would get there, I would always raise my hand, and I would always <laughs> say, any chance it's just a different animal? Any chance at all? <laughs> so, on behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, first of all, Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedicam vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. Now on behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and social media maven Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless. <laughs>